Okay, folks, welcome back. Another episode of the Lucid Health Podcast. My name is Luke Tullick. You can reach me uh, by email, luke at lucidhealthcoaching.com or on Instagram at Luke Lucid Health. Now, today, what we're looking at is statistical power. And I'm going to start by talking about what happens when we conduct studies. When we conduct studies, we are collecting data and then analyzing that data. And what we're looking to do is we're looking to see if the data is giving us the correct conclusion or the correct answer to our question. The question that we're asking in a research study is called the hypothesis. How do you generate a hypothesis? How do you generate a research question? This usually arises from observing a relationship in the world or having an idea about how something might work. And then we ask a really specific question and we design a study to answer that question. And this is something that frustrates me a little bit by the people who say, oh, well, you know, practical experience and time in the trenches is better than those stupid academic dorks. Well, really what's happening is if you have a scientific mindset, you're constantly generating hypotheses and you're trying to test them. So a hypothesis might be something like, well, I've noticed that when I train my clients in the gym, doing chin-ups results in greater growth in their back than doing rows. The only way you could test that is if you set up some kind of situation where you were controlling every possible variable and testing chin-ups versus rows and measuring back growth. That's the only way you could do it. So in that way, I think a lot of uh, meatheads in the gym are actually quite scientific in the way they're approaching things. The problem is just that they don't actually control for any variables. And that's what a research study is designed to do. So throwing out any research as just being for academics and not having any practical relevance is completely stupid because it's all based off of observing something happening in the world, being curious about it, and then asking a really specific question to try and answer that. Now, sometimes our data does lead us to an incorrect conclusion, and there are two different types of errors that we can make. The first type of error is called a type 1 error. It's called a false positive this means that our data indicates that there is a result when there is no result. So imagine you get a breast cancer screening test and the results come back positive. This means that the test detected cancer, but if we committed a type one error, it means you don't actually have any cancer cells. So a type one error is a false positive. You get back a result when in fact in the real world, there is no result. So in our uh, example with the rows and the chin-ups, it might mean that you've detected a difference between the two when in fact there is no difference between the two. Now when we talk about hypotheses, we have in science a way of phrasing it that's quite specific. So we have to have uh, either a position where we've detected a difference or a position where we've detected no difference. And the way it's phrased in research studies is with a null hypothesis and an alternative hypothesis. The null hypothesis basically means there is no difference between any of the conditions tested. So in our example here, the null hypothesis would be that there is no difference between rows and chin-ups for back growth. The alternative hypothesis is in fact the opposite. It means that there would be a difference between the two conditions. If we got a type one error in this study, uh, it would mean we got a false positive, which would mean we're confirming our alternative hypothesis. We're rejecting the null hypothesis and saying, hey, there's not no difference. There actually is a difference. We're going to reject the null hypothesis and say, yes, there is a difference. We accept the alternative hypothesis. 
If that was done incorrectly, we're getting a type one error, a false positive, which means we should have accepted the null hypothesis that there is no difference between the two conditions. So in this example, a type one error would be something like we've rejected the null hypothesis. We've said there is not no difference in growth between rows and chin-ups, and we're actually gonna accept the alternative hypothesis. The alternative being that there is a difference between chin-ups and rows in terms of growth. So in a type one error, we've accepted that there is some difference in back growth between rows and chin-ups when in fact there actually isn't. Now a type two error would be the opposite. It would mean that we've found with our study that there's actually no difference between the two conditions. Rows and chin-ups produce no different results for back growth when in fact in reality they did. Now bear with me if this is a little bit confusing with the language. It's just an, uh, something that you probably have to understand because you will come across it if you look into any statistics at any point. You're gonna see something called null hypothesis, alternative hypothesis, type one and type two errors. So you kind of do need to be familiar with the nomenclature. Okay, so a type two error is the opposite. It's a false negative, the opposite situation. So our cancer screening test shows that you do not have cancer when you really do. Now here's the most important point that you have to keep in mind. While we never want to make errors, there is always, always, always going to be some chance of these errors occurring. There is never ever a perfect, completely 100% certain result in science ever. So we just have to decide what's an acceptable margin for error when we're collecting our data and interpreting the results. So for example, if we decided that we were only happy with a 1% chance of an error occurring, whether that's a type one error or a type two error, then we are potentially gonna throw out a lot of valuable data that may still be pretty accurate. It takes a huge amount of resources and a lot of very specific study design to reduce the chances of an error, which means that a lot of viable research will be considered invalid because we're just being a little bit too stringent with how happy we are in accepting the chance for error. So you don't wanna to go too low. Um, you know, Obviously the automatic response when you hear this top, um, subject for the first time is go, oh, well, we don't want any errors. So why don't we just go, look, the acceptable margin for an error, it should be really low, like under 1% maybe. Well, the reality is um, given study design and how we put together and analyze data, it's very, very unlikely that you're gonna get a result that has a less than a 1% chance of making a false positive or a type one error. It's gonna be really hard. And so a lot of data that we do collect is gonna be useless. Now, of course, on the other side, on the other hand, we don't want to accept too high of a chance for error because obviously that means we wouldn't be very confident of our results. So if we accepted a really high chance, let's say a 10% chance that we're gonna be getting a false positive, you know, if you were getting a breast cancer screening test and they go, oh, look, there's a 10% chance that this result's gonna be wrong. You're not really gonna trust the test very much, are you? So this is where the concept of a p-value comes in. So you may have seen on a research study something like p is equal to 0.05. This means that the researchers have decided that they are willing to accept up to a 5% chance that they will get a false positive from their data, so a type one error. They will deem the data statistically significant if their stats analysis shows that there's a less than 5% chance they're committing a type one error. So if we go back to our breast cancer screening, if we had a p-value of 0.05,
That means we're willing to accept a 5% chance that the test will come back positive when you actually don't have cancer. In other words, we'll get a, a false positive. There's a 5% chance of that occurring. So whatever the p-value is set for, that's how happy we are. That's the cutoff point for the chance of a type one error occurring, us getting a false positive, when in fact, nothing is different. Now it's really important to note that this is arbitrarily set. So for something like a breast cancer screening or pregnancy test, uh, I think you might find it unacceptable to have a 5% chance of getting a false positive. So in other words, like a pregnancy test telling you that you're pregnant or a breast cancer screening test saying that you have cancer when you actually don't, um, I think that would probably be a little bit high. You could set your p-value to something lower if you wanted to. So a p-value of 0.01 would mean that you would have a 1% chance of getting a false positive. Um, and a p-value of 0.05 is actually really common in biological sciences. It's probably the most common p-value that you will see. Now there's a lot of conjecture out there. There's quite a few papers out there saying that maybe we shouldn't be using a p-value of 0.05. It's still a bit too high to have a 5% chance that we're committing a type one error and getting false positives. Um, but you know that's sort of still up for debate at the moment. It just means that when you're reading uh, any research and you see that p-value, you have to keep that in mind um, and understand that that's related to statistical significance. So if we reach statistical significance, it just means that we're coming in underneath that cutoff for having a false positive occurring. Okay, so what about type two errors, the false negative? So this is the situation where you have the test showing that you do not have cancer when you actually do have cancer, a false negative, a type two error. This one's actually related to what we call the statistical power of the study. So there are several factors that affect statistical power, which we'll go into a bit later on. And the higher the statistical power of a study, the less the chance is that we'll get this false negative occurring. Now, the scary part is, is that it's actually pretty typical to find a power value of 80% as being acceptable, meaning that there's a 20% chance of getting a false negative. So that's massive, obviously that's huge. And most people don't really understand or realize this side of doing biological research. The chance of having a type two error, a false negative, is very, very high in most studies. In fact, you'll actually find that in most studies, the power value is much lower than 80%, meaning that our chances of getting a false negative are actually quite far above the, that 20% chance I just mentioned. So in reality, this power value of 80% being deemed acceptable, well, in reality, uh, there's actually uh, quite a lot of research uh, that's on the low end of that. So it means that there's a really high chance of being told you don't have cancer when in fact you do. So to avoid this type of error, we need to do as much as we possibly can to improve the statistical power of study design. And that's why we're so concerned about study design. Now, at this point, if you're pretty sharp, you will have realized that just because something is statistically significant doesn't mean it's a useful result. Firstly, there's still a chance that if something is statistically significant, that we're committing a type one error, we're getting a false positive. The chance is small, but it's still there. So this is probably the easiest thing to pick up, but if we have a p-value of 0.05, it means we are comfortable with having a 5% chance that we're actually wrong with our data and our conclusion. 
So we may say that the result is statistically significant and then accept the result, but there's still a up to 5% chance that we're not correct, even though we've accepted the conclusion of our study. Secondly, statistical significance doesn't account for the type two errors, the false negatives. There's still a very real chance that we'll get a false negative. Like I just mentioned before, there are plenty of studies that have a p-value of 0.05, and their results come in at underneath that. And then we say that the results are statistically significant, but we haven't looked at the statistical power of the study. And like I said before, there's still a pretty high chance, maybe 20% or more, that a false negative is occurring. Finally, the most important point probably is that a result can be statistically significant, but at the same time, it can be clinically irrelevant. So what do I mean by this? Let's uh, do a little thought experiment. Let's say you want to compare two different diets on the effects of weight loss of these two diets. So you set up an experiment for 12 weeks long. You control the variables as best you can and you collect the data. Subjects using diet A lose five kilograms over the test period and subjects using diet B lost 5.5 kilograms. You analyze the data. You use a p-value of 0, uh, 0 0.05, so 5% chance and you find that your result comes in underneath this value, so you have a statistically significant result. Fantastic. But does this have any practical significance? Is 500 grams of weight loss over 12 weeks relevant? Is it enough for you to recommend diet B to your clients? If you skimmed the abstract, you might even note that the authors could state a 10% greater weight loss using diet B. While this is true, and whilst the result is actually statistically significant, it's not very impressive and it's unlikely to convince me to necessarily use one diet over the other one. All right, so let's have a quick recap to where we're up to right now. We're looking at sorting out a hypothesis, a research question. We want to answer this question and collect some data to answer it for us. The data is asking a really specific question. And what we want to know is, is our hypothesis right or is it wrong? Are we going to accept it or reject our hypothesis? So we gather the data and then we run a fancy statistical analysis, which is going to tell us how likely it is that we've gotten the right answer. Okay, so imagine you're in this situation. You are the head of some secret service organization and you're trying to take out an enemy operative, all right? Bear, me with, <laughs> bear with me on this. So you've got a guy in position, you've got an agent, he's a sniper, right? And he thinks he's got the guy in his sights. He radios back to base and he says, all right, I think I got him. Should I pull the trigger? And you're thinking to yourself, all right, if I'm, I'm gonna ask this guy how sure he is that he's got the right guy. If he's at least 95% sure that it's the right guy, I'm going to tell him to pull a trigger. That's a P of 0 0.05, 95% sure. You ask the question and he says, yeah, I'm 99% sure, P of 0 0.01. And you go, all right, cool, go ahead, pull the trigger. Now there's still a 1% chance that you got the wrong guy, a false positive, a type one error, but you're 99% sure with a P value of 0 0.01 that you got the right result, it's the right guy, and you're gonna get the right guy. 
Okay, now imagine the same situation, but with a type two error, a false negative. So we're in the same situation. Your guy radios back and says, I think I've got the guy, but you feel that maybe you don't have enough information to make the right call. So you say, oh, you know what? Don't take the shot. It ends up being the guy that you needed to take out and he kills a bunch of civilians or something. Okay, so the issue here is that you didn't have enough information. So how do we remedy that? Well, in our study design, what we need is a more robust design so that we can have greater statistical power so that we can make a better decision and be more confident in our decision. Um, and so the issue here is that we had a type two error. It was a false negative. It was actually the guy, but we thought it wasn't him. Okay, so let's go into what parts of a study design we can actually use to improve statistical power. The first one I want to talk about is study duration. So the first thing to note is that many of the outcomes we're trying to measure take a long time to come into focus. They are slow processes. Muscle growth and fat loss and changes in cognitive function and changes in cardiometabolic health and, and seeing these biomarkers change can take a long time to manifest any measurable changes. Even with the most precise uh, laboratory equipment available, it can uh, you know, take several weeks or even months to detect a statistically significant change. So usually any changes that we see before this are just too small and they're not gonna reach statistical significance. So the, the other issue is also that they might be within the margin of error for the measurement method, which we'll talk a little bit about as well. Okay, so this brings me to my next point. The smaller the difference is between the groups that we're studying, the longer the study duration is needed for statistical significance to be detected. So what I mean by that is that it's easier to detect a difference between two groups when one group does nothing and acts as a control group and the other group performs a diet or undergoes a training program. But if you're trying to compare, say, two different training programs or two different diets or two different supplement protocols or whatever it is, then presumably both groups are going to get some sort of result, but you're trying to find out which one gets better results. So because they're both getting results, the actual difference between the two is going to be smaller than if you just had one group doing nothing and acting as a control and the other group doing something. So it would take a longer time for you to see any potential changes between the groups emerge to any significant degree. Okay, so with that in mind, the longer the duration of the study, the more confident we can be that the results we're seeing are statistically significant. So if we take our previous example of five kilograms of fat loss over 12 weeks versus diet B, which had 5.5 kilograms of fat loss over 12 weeks, if we had run the study for twice as long, if we'd taken it to 24 weeks, we may have seen diet B extend that small advantage it had over diet A and result in a much larger difference in weight loss, which means we may be more confident in using diet B. Uh, whereas before I kind of thought that, you know, half a kilo of weight loss over 12 weeks was not really that clinically significant, okay? So the bottom line here is that the longer the duration of the study, the greater statistical power we get. Next, we need to look at diminishing returns. In biology, we don't usually see a one-to-one -one ratio of input and output. Each unit of effort does not always produce the same result. Um, in you know business books and stuff like that, you often see this phrased as the 80-20 rule, where 80% of the result comes from 20% of the effort. 
We see this in pretty much everything. So muscle gain, fat loss, even energy expenditure, which I'll do a podcast on, but uh, that comes back to the constrained model of uh, energy expenditure. Um, simply doubling your training volume, for example, doesn't double your muscle gains. Doubling your protein intake does not double the amount of muscle that you produce. Um, this means that we're very rarely gonna see a linear relationship between an intervention and any observable changes. So let's say that you wanted to test the difference between doing something like uh, 16 sets per body part per week versus 20 sets per body part per week and see how that affects muscle growth. So it might seem like a really big difference in training volume and it is, it's 25% uh, more work, but it's not gonna yield 25% more results. We already know that doing three sets per week gives less results than say 10 sets per week but at some point, the relationship between training volume and muscle growth begins to show diminishing returns. And you're not going to expect to keep making more and more and more gains the more sets you do. So what that means is that it's really difficult to detect statistically significant differences between conditions when the basics have already been met. So it's likely, in fact, that we'd get a result that is statistically non-significant between my example of 16 sets per body part and 20 sets per body part. And we should be uh, careful to interpret this as uh, no difference. It just means that we didn't have enough statistical power to see any difference between the conditions. So because the study is underpowered in this situation, it doesn't mean that because we didn't detect any differences between the two groups that there is no difference. It just means we didn't have enough statistical power to actually see any difference between 16 sets per body part and 20 sets per body part because the difference in results is gonna be really small despite a large difference in training volume. So in this situation, you also have to keep in mind that previous experience obviously affects your study power, previous experience of the, of the subjects. Trained subjects are obviously less likely to see large changes over a given period compared to untrained subjects. So, you know, obviously we usually wanna see studies done with trained subjects uh, because we all know how easy it is for untrained subjects to get results. But the reason why untrained subjects are used is because it controls their previous experience, meaning that everyone's coming in as a more or less blank slate. And secondly, it means that you're likely to get a statistically significant result because your study power is stronger. Um, so that's why untrained subjects are often used. Okay, so the next point is that we might want to use multiple groups in a study. And I often see this as a bit of a gripe with people. It's like, oh, well, you only use two groups or three groups. It would have been good if you could compare this to other things. So often in studies, we want to compare more than one condition. We may want to compare the effects of, say, uh, this is a really common one, uh, less than six hours sleep per night compared to more than eight hours of sleep per night. That's really common in the sleep research to see. And it leaves that middle period of six to eight hours per night, which is probably where most people fall, to be honest. Uh, that leaves it open to debate. So adding a third group that sleeps, say, seven hours per night would help give us a much better understanding of how much sleep we actually need and if there's a sort of linear difference between each of those conditions. The first problem with this is that you need to recruit a lot more subjects, which is gonna cost money. And also it's difficult to get test subjects to make it happen. And that's gonna affect your statistical power. We're gonna go on and talk about that in a sec. The second problem is that the more uh, statistical tests you run between groups, the more comparisons you make, the more likely you are to end up with a type one error, that false positive. So, 
in our example, if we agree on a p-value of 0.05, we're agreeing that we're 95% confident that our results represent reality, uh, but there's a 5% chance that we're going to see a result when there actually wasn't one. So that means from our example that every 20 breast cancer screening tests we do, we're going to expect at least one false positive, which means one out of 20 people will be told they have cancer when they don't. So that's not an ideal situation. Um, tightening our criteria is one option we could pursue. We could say that we're only comfortable with a 1% error rate, which would be a P of 0.01. The problem with that is that it drastically reduces your statistical power because you're saying whatever results I get, I'm going to be more skeptical uh, when my data shows that there's a clear difference between groups. So in this situation, having a P of 0.05 is fine if you're going to be doing a small number of tests. Um, but the more tests you do, the more likely it is you're going to get a false positive, And I'll explain why. Adding groups increases the number of tests you're going to have to do, the number of comparative tests you're going to have to do, because you have to compare uh, each group against all the other groups you've got. So if we have uh, two conditions that we're comparing, let's say it's less than six hours of sleep per night versus more than eight hours of sleep per night, we just have one comparison test to do. That's it. But if we add a third condition of seven hours of sleep per night, we now need to compare less than six hours to seven hours. We need to compare less than six hours to more than eight hours. And we need to compare seven hours to more than eight hours. So we've gone from only doing one test to doing three tests by adding one extra group. If we added a fourth group, we'd have to do the following. We'd have to compare group one versus group two, group one versus group three, group one versus group four, group two versus group three, group two versus group four, and group three versus group four. So now we have six different tests we have to run. So every time we add a group, we're exponentially adding the number of tests we have to do. The greater the number of groups or conditions, you get an exponential decrease in statistical power because every time you run a test, there's a chance you're gonna commit a type one error, which means we're gonna get a higher chance of having a false positive occur. If you wanted to counteract this, you'd have to increase your subject numbers, increase the duration of the study, increase the quality of the measurements, all of those things, which obviously makes it much, much, much harder to conduct the study. So anytime you gripe about there not being enough groups that they're comparing with, just keep in mind that it really drastically reduces statistical power of a test. Uh, now, next, I'm going to discuss some of those things that I just mentioned, subject numbers, uh, duration and quality of measurements, because this all comes under the heading of variation. This is a bit of a side note to the previous point about diminishing returns. In biology, the individual response to an intervention is highly variable, and this has two parts to it. The first part is that high variation in data points makes it difficult to detect differences between groups um, because we're always comparing the average result in each group. But if there's a lot of variation between subjects, it can be hard to be certain which intervention worked best. So, you know, you might have an average value of 10, but the spread of those results could be really broad. Whereas in another situation, you might have an average value of 10 again, but they might have a really tight uh, grouping. So in that first situation, it's really hard to detect differences between groups. The second part is that the average result is not predictive of the individual response. Variation between subjects means that sometimes something gets a negative or a null result for one subject, and it may produce a really large positive result for another subject. So this is where we get people like hyper responders, you know, they're at the end of the of the normal distribution. And 
Variables that we're unable to control will influence this, things like um, you know, genetics and psychology and previous experiences and that type of thing. So this is where the principle of subject numbers comes into play. The more subjects we have, the more data points we can collect. With more data points, we can get a better idea of how individual responses fall along the distribution. So to give you an example, and this is just sort of a classic example that we're always taught in statistics, Flipping a coin obviously has a 50% chance of landing heads and 50% chance of landing tails. So if you flipped a coin just a handful of times, say five times, it's possible and it's reasonably likely that you're gonna get more heads than tails or you're gonna get more tails than heads. And you even wouldn't be that surprised if you got five heads in a row or five tails in a row. But if you flipped the coin a hundred times, you wouldn't expect that to happen. You wouldn't expect to get a hundred heads in a row or 90 heads in a row or 80 heads you'd expect to see a roughly equal distribution between heads and tails based purely on the, that 50% probability, right? And the more times you flip that coin, the more likely it is that you're gonna get a 50-50 result at the end of the day. So if we did it a thousand times, you would expect roughly 500 heads and roughly 500 tails. So this means that the more subjects we have, the greater the statistical power of our study. We're leaving less things up to just pure probability that we had, say, five hyper-responders to the condition. It's more likely that we're going to see a true representation of the normal population. So again, the more subject numbers we have, the greater the statistical power of our study. Now, we can also try and control the variation between subjects like genetics or lifestyle, like I mentioned before, by using something called a within subject design. And an example of this would be using the same subject for all conditions being tested. So usually you'd have a washout period between them to try and avoid any potential influence from the previous test. So in an example, you might have subjects try a supplement for six weeks, measure any changes over that six weeks, then have a washout period, which could be two weeks, four weeks, whatever to allow these changes to revert, and then you would test the other supplement or the other condition for six weeks. And then you would have data for both supplements, but it would be within the same subject, which uh, you know decreases the chance of those variables that we can't control influencing the outcome. Another way it's done is in training subjects. So you could have the subjects train one limb using a particular training protocol, and the other limb could be a control meaning you're not training that limb at all. So this is really common to say, do leg extensions on one leg and then you don't do anything with the other leg. And this effectively controls for individual variation between subjects, as well as doubling your number of data points because obviously you've got two legs. So now instead of having say 10 subjects and you're only, you know, you've got to put five in each group, five that don't train and five that do train, five in the control group and five in the treatment group, you can now have all 10 subjects do both because they each have two legs, presumably. So this boosts your statistical power because now you've doubled the number of data points that you've got. Okay, so lastly on the variation front is measurement error. There's always some error involved with any measurement that we do. So every device, every method, technique or operator, like every researcher will have some margin of error between measurements. So if you took uh, skin folds and then you did the same skin fold again immediately afterwards, you would expect some margin of error where they wouldn't be exactly the same. And even some of the gold standard techniques used for measuring various biomarkers, like uh, if we have DEXA for body fat and lean body mass, have an inherent limitation in their variability, their variation. So let's take an example and say that on average, 
DEXA varies how much it predicts body fat percentage by up to 1%. This means that if you're a true 15% body fat, the DEXA result could say anything between 14% and 16% because it varies by 1% either side of your true 15. And these are just made up numbers, by the way. It's just for the purposes of demonstration. I don't know how much it actually varies. If you want to detect a true loss of body fat over a dieting period, you need to be sure that you were dieting long enough to produce at least a 2% decrease in body fat in this example, because there's at least 2% difference between what you could be measured in in the DEXA. It would mean a study duration of anything less than say six weeks or however long it takes to lose 2% body fat may not be long enough to detect a true difference. So again, the more variation we encounter, the longer the study duration is required to increase statistical power. And secondly, the tools and techniques you use to collect your data affects the study power. Okay, so poor techniques and higher variation both decrease study power. All right, I'm gonna to start to wrap it up here. So hopefully this provides some insight into why and how statistical power is important and why studies are built a certain way. I often see lay people or people who don't really understand this. Um, and believe me, I'm not uh, some kind of statistical research expert, but often I see people making these um, comments like, oh, I wish they would have done this. Why did they do it like this? Man, these studies are all so dumb and, and all this type of thing. And this is why there's a lot to think about when you're designing a study. And the problem with low power in a study is that you're likely to draw a conclusion that's incorrect. So the kicker is that you won't be sure if it's right or wrong. What we're trying to accomplish with high statistical power is increasing certainty that the result of our study is an accurate reflection of reality. An underpowered study doesn't prove that a treatment doesn't work. So if you see no, uh, like a no result from an underpowered study, it just means that you're not sure if it works or not. It doesn't, it's the worst place to be in. It doesn't mean that the treatment doesn't work. It means you're not sure if it works or not. So it's a, it's a worst place to be in than having a high-powered study that shows you that there's no difference between groups. So there are plenty of high-powered studies that detect no differences between groups, but this is a valuable and a useful thing because we then know with a fair degree of certainty that something doesn't work. So it's all about increasing our level of certainty and gathering as much evidence as we can with variance, various bits of nuance between studies so that we can make an overall decision based on probability. As I said before, nothing is 100% certain in science, but we can get pretty close. And I will spend a little bit more time on study design and, and that type of thing if people are interested. All right, thanks a lot again for listening to the Lucid Health Podcast. My name is Luke Tullock. You can contact me uh, by email, luke at lucidhealthcoaching.com on my Instagram, which is at lucidhealth. Uh, so if you want to get in touch, let me know what you think about this podcast episode and I'll catch you guys in the next one. Cheers.